Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Hey, I realize there's a lot of people who listen to this podcast that can never attend North Shore Vineyard because you live in other parts of the country, but you get a lot out of what we discuss from week to week. Consider maybe contributing financially to what we're doing. Visit northshorevineyard.org and the tab that says donate and anything you can give could help us out. We'd really appreciate it. Now for today's talk, an invitation to wrestle. We're looking at how we work through our beliefs with the Bible, with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit in community, and how we hold those beliefs. This one's called An Invitation to Wrestle. It's out of the talk, North Shore Vineyard, downtown Covington. Thanks for listening. jump into the message. Like I said, we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at uh, who we are as a church, our vision, our values, and and kind of where we're going moving forward. And so today, I want to start by talking about our beliefs, how we think through our beliefs, how we arrive at our beliefs, and how we hold that, hold the beliefs, or at least what we're trying to aim to do. And so so I want to start off by, by actually talking first about the Bible. Uh, how many of y'all have ever read The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis? Twice. All right. Yeah, that's a great book. The movies were kind of, eh, but I heard that Netflix is doing a reboot of uh, Narnia, so that ought to be cool. That's good. Yeah. Uh, but in, in The Chronicles of Narnia, it's basically a story about these four children during World War II who end up living out in the countryside to avoid the, the carnage the bombs from the Nazi bombing campaign and they're staying in this large chateau of a house and they're doing what kids who are mostly unsupervised in a large house would do you know they're running around playing hide and seek and they stumble into this magic wardrobe which is really a portal to a whole other world called Narnia and in Narnia there's all kinds of fairy tale creatures witches and elves and dwarves and all kind of things but they meet this one character named Aslan who's a lion and Aslan actually represents Christ. And there's this scene in the book where I, I believe it's Lucy, one of the kids, she's talking about Aslan and she says, Aslan is not a tame lion, but he's good. That's, that's like one of the best descriptions you can have for God. God is not tame, but God is good. We so often, it seems like religion is always aiming to squeeze God into some kind of religious or ideological box, but God, the creator of the universe, will not be squeezed into our ideology or our religion or our politics. You cannot contain the one who created everything from atoms all the way up to supernova galaxies. You cannot contain that God within any box that you can think of. I mean, it sounds like duh, right? I mean, like, like we're just human beings. With a, we're the creation. We have a limited perspective on things. Why would we ever do that? And yet we do that all the time, don't we? We try to domesticate and tame God and get a handle on the God of the universe. God is not a tame God, but he's good. Second thing I'd say is along those lines, the Bible is not a tame book, 
but it's good. It's not a tame book, but it's good. You know, the Bible is a complicated book. I remember as a young Christian, you know, somebody would decide they're going to follow Jesus, and you give them the Bible and just, just go read this thing. <laughs> and you, you just kind of treat the Bible like anybody can read this book. It's easy, and it's a complicated book. In fact, it's not even a book. It's a collection of books, a collection of books written down over a 1,500-year period. Five times the age of North America, or, or America, the United States of America. 1,500 years it took to write down the scriptures as we know it. And many of the stories that were actually written down probably existed in a, an oral tradition for centuries before they were ever written down. We're talking about a book that is complex, covering a huge span of time, many different cultural contexts, many different kind of uh, Issues were coming up that people were facing and trying to wrestle through. Not only that, this, this book, the Bible, is written in three different languages. Ancient Hebrew, Greek, and portions of it are written in Aramaic. Written by an untold amount of authors. We don't even know how many authors were involved in coming up with the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. And then you have the question of genre. You know, say, say you decide you're going to buy a new car, and so you go down to, the, to one of the car places to buy a car, and you've, you finally settled on the car you're going to get, and maybe you need to get some financing for that car. Even if you don't get financing, you're at least going to have to sign some paperwork. Now, here's what you don't want to do. When you go to sit down and look at the terms and conditions of your lease or <laughs> the purchase, you don't want to start looking at that terms and conditions metaphorically, Right? You don't want to look for some, some kind of transcendent meaning from it because it's not about transcendence or metaphor. It's about, like, it is what it says. <laughs> now, say you buy that car, and then you decide, you know, i got a real hankering for poetry. I always do that when I buy a car. I say, I just want to go read some poetry now. So you go over to Barnes & Noble, and you pick up a book of poetry. Now, if you read that poetry book the same way you read those law documents, you're going to end up with something really crazy. We know that intuitively, and yet so often when it comes to the Bible, we don't realize the Bible is made up of many different genres of books. You have history. You have law. You have poetry. You even have erotic poetry, the Song of Solomon. What kind of crazy holy book is that? You put erotic poetry up in the middle of this thing. Not a tame book. <laughs> You've got apocalyptic literature, which is, is its own genre, the Old Testament prophets, the book of Revelation, where they employ metaphor and poetry to say something that, that, that saying it in regular terms would not get the point across in the same way. And one of my favorite books in the Bible, the book of Psalms, is just a bunch of song lyrics. Then you got gospels and epistles you got all these different kind of genres written over 1,500 years in multiple different languages, different cultural situations. Not to mention, you know, when I was in college, I studied history. And there's a saying in history, you know, that, that history is written by the victors. And yet the Bible, the most, uh, the, the, the best-selling book of all time in the world, contains a history that wasn't written by victors. 
It wasn't written by emperors. It wasn't written by those who, who won these big wars. It was written predominantly by people who were on the margins, who, who didn't have power, people who were in captivity. I think that's one of the greatest things to say, that this is an inspired book. And I think that's why this book keeps meaning something to people. Because if you're going through uh, struggles and suffering and hard times, you can find resonance with these stories over and over again like people have for centuries and centuries. It is not a tame book, but it's a good book. I think the dominant way that people approach the scriptures in, in modern America is they look at the Bible as a book that answers questions. It's primarily given to us to answer questions and clear things up. I remember as a young Christian hearing, B-I-B-L-E stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. <laughs> I remember going to a men's event one time and the, and the speaker held up the Bible and says, this is your owner's manual. This is the owner manual for your life. And the, and the thinking is, you know, you see a check, check engine light come on in your life, go pull out the owner's manual and look up the symptoms, and then, you know, you'll, you'll solve your problem. Dana bought me a gift when we were married a couple of years. I was a, a college pastor over at SLU, and she bought me a gift to help me with my messages, and it was called Where to Find It in the Bible. And this book was at least as big as the Bible, but it was crazy. I mean, it wasn't crazy at the time. It made perfect sense. You could look up anything. I, I mean, anything. Like, is it okay for a Christian to drink beer? Is it okay? What about dating? Does God like the Beatles or the Stones? And <laughs> how often should I do routine maintenance on my 2003 Honda Element? No, I mean, it, it didn't get quite that specific. But it was amazing. You could find a scripture for darn near anything you wanted to do. And actually, people do this all the time. You know there's some 40,000 Christian denominations in the world today, and you know what they divide over? How to interpret this book. If it was so clear, <laughs> we would, we'd have one Christian denomination, but people divide over this stuff all the time because you can get the Bible to say anything you want it to. You can find anything you want to justify, and you'll find a scripture for it, maybe two, maybe three or four or five. The Bible is not a tame book, but it is a good book. But what if the Bible is not primarily meant to be read as prescriptive? prescribing us the answers for, for every situation we, we find. What if the Bible should be read descriptively? What if the, the, the Bible isn't, isn't something that's going to resolve all the mystery in our world, but a window into mystery? What if the Bible is meant to, to root us in a heritage, a lineage of people who have wrestled with God. Maybe the Bible doesn't answer your questions, but it puts you in good company with other people who've wrestled with God. So I want to talk first about a wrestler named Jacob. Back in Genesis, there's this story of these two brothers. They're twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. And when they're being born, back in that culture at that time, the firstborn, they got the bulk of the inheritance. They got the blessing from the father and all this stuff. Uh, when, when these babies are being born, Esau, Jacob's brother, comes out first. But Jacob is clinging to his heel. And so they name Jacob, Jacob. And Jacob means supplanter. 
it means deceiver, you know, because he's like, he's already trying to, to get ahead of his brother, just coming out. And so they name him Jacob, which I was just hearing on the radio today. It's, it's like one of the po- most popular names in the world today. So uh, people in their 20s, there's more Jacobs than anybody else. So back in the late 90s, a lot of people were naming their kids Jacob, as far as boys. Just a little bit of useless trivia for you. It has nothing to do with anything else I'm going to talk about today. <laughs> but Jacob lives up to his name. He cons his brother out of his birthright. He deceives his father into giving him the the blessing that was reserved for the firstborn. And and this does not endear his brother to him in any way. And so there's tension between these two brothers. And Jacob is kind of trying to hide away from his brother Esau because his brother Esau wants to kill him. And and finally he realizes, I've got to try to face up and make things right with his brother. So he's he's heading on the way to to make, make things right with Esau. And then, the night before, he bumps into God. He bumps into an angel. And he says he wrestled with this angel all night long until the wee hours of the morning. And the angel's like, dude, let go of me. (laughs) And Jacob's like, I'm not going to let go of you until you bless me. And so finally, the angel's like, okay, I'll bless you. After he knocks his hip out of socket, Jacob would walk with a a limp for the rest of his life. But he blesses him. And he says, I'm going to change your name. No longer are you going to be called deceiver. You will be called Israel. And what does Israel mean? One who wrestles with God. Now, if you're looking at this story prescriptively, like give me some inspirational scripture that I can stick up on my mirror or the dashboard of my car or the refrigerator, something to remind me of. You're not going to find anything there. You're not going to find much prescriptive that, that tells you. I mean, unless you are prone to bumping into angels and wrestling, which might be helpful. But if you look at this as descriptive, if you look at this as a window into what it is actually like, to follow God. Oh, well, now you're on to something. I mean, do you realize the very one from, from, from whom the, the people of God in the Old Testament were named? They're named Israel. A whole group of people named after this guy, people who wrestle with God. And if you read the stories of the Old Testament from Moses to Abraham to King David all the way up into to, to even the New Testament, you see that a part of actually following God is not getting all your questions answered. <laughs> it is actually wrestling with the Spirit of God, wrestling with the issues of your world, wrestling with morality, wrestling with what it, it means to be righteous and follow after Jesus and trust God. The answers you get may not be the same answers that they got. But the Bible is a window into what the process looks like. So that's the Old Testament. Let's look at the New Testament. Let's see how much time. I better hurry up. The New Testament. Most Bible scholars will say that the birthday of the church is the day of Pentecost, which you can read about in the second chapter of Acts. A little backstory on it. Jesus is telling the disciples, he says, It is good that I leave you because instead of having a relationship with God that is external, I'm going to send my spirit. And now my spirit will indwell you and my spirit will give you uh, power. It will comfort you. My spirit will lead you into truth, remind you of the things that I've said. So I want you guys to go over to Jerusalem and wait for the coming Holy Spirit. 
So Jesus ascends back to heaven. The disciples, they go to Jerusalem, and they're hanging out in this big room on the second floor, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait, and wait some more. And while they're waiting, the city starts preparing for an annual festival that they had called the Festival of First Fruits or the Festival of Pentecost. And and then on the day of Pentecost, while the disciples are waiting and praying, it says that they heard the sound of a hurricane force wind. It begins to shake the place. And then it gets weird. They look around, and it looks like everybody's head is on fire. Crazy stuff. But kind of like the burning bush in the Old Testament, the fire was, I mean, nobody's flesh was burning off. They were melting off their face or anything. But then then it even gets weirder. You have this strong wind. You have people looking like their heads are on fire. And then these guys who were mainly rural folk from the north shore of the Sea of Galilee who spoke probably even with a, with a bit of a country hick accent, <laughs> their version of, of Aramaic at the time, all of a sudden they begin speaking in languages that none of them knew, not their native tongue. And they begin spilling out of the second floor room into the streets that are now crowded with people from all over the Mediterranean world who are there to celebrate the fist festival. And now these people from all these different parts of the world are hearing the wonders of God proclaimed in their language by these humble Galilean fishermen. Now, to some of the people in Jerusalem, it just sounded like these guys are just, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, they're just saying stuff. And, and people are like, you guys been partying all night? You hitting the bottle early? What's going on? It's like 9 o'clock in the morning. And Peter gets out there. And I love how Peter explains what's going on. Keep in mind, what is going on? The Holy Spirit has showed up. And language is not a barrier. It's kind of the reversing of the Tower of Babel kind of thing where God confused the language of people. Now God is doing something to unite people. People can hear God in their own language. It's a very key component about this thing. But Peter gets up, and out of all the ways that he could explain what's going on, here's how he does it. He says this is actually what was prophesied by the prophet of Joel, the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all. Is that with me? All flesh, your sons and your daughters. How many people are in here are a son or a daughter? Okay. (laughs) Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions even on your servants, which another way to translate servants would be slaves, the lowest members of society, the ones that have no rights, no freedom. Even they can get in on this. I will pour out my spirit, says the Lord. What is Peter saying there? See, up until that point, if you wanted to get in on the manifest presence with God, it was a Jewish guys club. Not just Jewish guys. I mean, you actually had to be in the tribe of Levite. They were the the priestly class among the 12 tribes of Israel. But not just any Levites. There was a handful of Levites that actually got to serve in the, in the, 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 the inner courts of the temple and actually experience God maybe once a year. Now, there's a few exceptions to that rule throughout the Old Testament, but most of the story up to the day of Pentecost has been 
the only people who get to experience God were a handful of Jewish guys for centuries. And Peter proclaims, no, God's blowing this whole thing open. Men and women, young and old, slave and free, it doesn't matter where you are, you get to get in on the good things that God is doing. Don't shout me down now. That's good news. That's good news. And when you look at the early church, man, it was a beautiful picture of this. I mean, immediately, their response, nobody's telling them to do anything. What do they do? They start sharing their stuff. They start taking care of widows. They're breaking bread in homes. They're, they're meeting at the temple. They're just, and it said that they grew in favor with all people. It was just such a beautiful, wonderful thing for the first few years. But guess what? That everyone part of the Holy Spirit, it really didn't look like it was for everyone. Because for the first few years of the church, it was pretty much, I need to turn my ringer off. It was, it was pretty much just a Jewish guys club still. I mean, women were now a part Jewish women. But it really hadn't gone beyond Jerusalem. In fact, the early church, the early Christians wouldn't have thought of themselves as distinct from Judaism at all. They were just Jews who, who thought that Jesus was the Messiah. And so even though Peter was prompted on the day of Pentecost to say that this thing is for everyone, the reality is the first eight or nine years of the church, you really didn't see the everyone part really happening. And so the Holy Spirit starts having to move upon the everyone people. And so Peter has this vision. I don't know if I put the scripture reference to it. Oh, Acts 10. Peter has this vision in Acts 10. Oh, oh, and by the way, yeah, yeah, I'll just say this. Peter has a vision in Acts 10. He's sitting on the rooftop waiting for dinner to be finished. I always kind of think that that's a setup for a Homer Simpson vision. And uh, he sees this uh, sheet lowered from heaven. And when the sheet opens up, it's got animals, clean and unclean. Old Testament law said, you know, you can only eat clean animals, the ones that were uh, authorized under the Old Testament law. And, and Peter hears a voice says, arise, Peter, kill and eat. There's a lot of unclean animals like crawfish and shrimp and pigs and bacon cheeseburgers. And Peter says, no, Lord, I can't do that. The Bible tells me so. <laughs> oh, thank you. But God says, Peter, what I've told you, you can eat. You can eat. Arise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter has this vision three times, and God says the same thing, and Peter says the same thing. Like, no, Lord, I can't do it. The Bible tells me so. And God says, no, you can, because I'm telling you, whatever God's made holy is fine for you. Now, Peter comes out of this vision, and this vision really wasn't about dinner. <laughs> it was about the Gentiles. In a sense, this was God reminding Peter of something he said ten years before on the day of Pentecost. You said, dude, this thing was for everyone. Where's the everyone part of this happening? Unbeknownst to Peter, a few days before, a guy named Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion, he was in charge, he, he, he was in the Roman military, which was the arch enemies of the Jewish people. The Romans were the ones who were, you know, oppressing the Jewish people. They were taxing them heavily for wars that they didn't want to have anything to do with and projects that they didn't want to have anything to do with. 
And the Holy Spirit, uh, and, and, and God hears Cornelius' prayer. And it's just part of why the Holy Spirit gave Peter this vision. And so the Holy Spirit directs Peter to go to Cornelius' house, which must have been kind of scary for Peter. But Cornelius was a God-fearing man. It says, Peter shows up and begins to tell him about Jesus. But before he can get even done with his, his talk about Jesus, the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius and his house, and they begin to have a mini Pentecostal experience. They start having the same thing happen that happened to the disciples on the day of Pentecost. What do you do when God's behaving badly? <laughs> what do you do? What do you do when God's blessing the people that you thought were outside? God is not a tame God. And then a few years after that, the Apostle Paul starts launching into ministry. And he's, he's doing works almost exclusively among non-Jewish people around the Mediterranean world. And this, this begins to slowly ramp up to the first major crisis for the early church. 20 years after the day of Pentecost, 20 years after Peter could proclaim that this thing is for everyone, the church finally gets on board with what God is doing rather than their own interpretation of what they think God is up to. And this leads them to the Jerusalem Council. And the big question for the Jerusalem Council was, who gets to play? Do we let Gentiles in? And if we do, what kind of rules do we need to give them? Do we make them be circumcised? Do they have to keep Sabbath? Do they have to eat kosher food? What are the rules? And this is what they came up with. Which, by the way, I, I want to say something about the Holy Spirit real quick. Real quick. Uh, if you look at the ministry of Jesus, when Jesus was doing his earthly ministry with his disciples, Jesus was known for offending the Pharisees over and over again. The Pharisees had a certain type of religion where not only did they try to follow the 400-plus rules of the Old Testament, but they invented another 200 rules because they didn't think that the Old Testament law went far enough. And here Jesus comes along and he says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemy. Bless those who curse you. You've heard it said, don't murder. I'm saying the problem's not murder. It's the anger in your hearts. And Jesus has all these statements over and over again where he's quoting the scripture. He says, you heard it said like this, but here's the real issue. Jesus is, is even looking at the scriptures different from everybody else. And probably one of the most offensive things that Jesus ever said to the Pharisees, which is up on our wall here, he says, you want to know what the two greatest commands are? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That part wasn't so controversial. The next line was, though, he said, the entire law and the prophets are summed up in these two commands. Imagine how offensive that would be if you were trying to follow 600, 700 different laws, and Jesus just comes on and says, this is all you got to do. Love God, love people. Love yourself, too. That's it. <laughs> but I can imagine the disciples when Jesus was doing it going, yeah, Jesus, you tell them, Pharisees, you tell them. Stick it to them. Oh, Jesus, that was so awesome when you did that. But now in the book of Acts, the shoe's on the other foot. Who's the religious leaders now? Who's the ones getting offended by what God's doing now? Because the Holy Spirit is doing the same thing that Jesus did. The Holy Spirit always does the same thing Jesus does. 
If you see somebody saying that the Holy Spirit is doing something and it doesn't look like Jesus, question the heck out of that. Jesus is our picture. That's how we can discern if something is of God. The Holy Spirit's not going to contradict Jesus. But now the disciples are in the weird part of they think some people ought to be excluded and God doesn't. So they finally at the Jerusalem Council, after dialoguing about all things, they said this, the verdict. We are sending Judas and Silas to confirm my word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond following the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. So after all that, 20 years, they come up with four rules. And those four rules, guess what? Even the Apostle Paul, in his dealings with the church in Corinth, he throws one of those rules away, the food sacrifice to idols. If you read, I think, 2 Corinthians, Paul digs into this whole argument. He says, look, if it doesn't bother your conscience to eat food sacrificed to idols, go ahead. But just keep in mind, there's people with a weak conscience that you may offend. So if you see people who can't eat food sacrificed to an idol, don't eat food sacrificed to an idol in front of them. And as far as, like, eating meat with blood in it, I mean, the church in America, <laughs> it doesn't look like anybody has a problem with eating rare steaks. I mean, at least on these grounds. What do you do when God behaves badly? Well, I, I, I share this example from the book of Acts because, again, if this is prescriptive, what are we going to get out of that anyway? But if what Acts is actually describing is what it is like to follow Jesus, that sometimes you're going to be like the disciples with Jesus and you're going to be going, yeah, yeah, we rejoice in this. Other times you're going to find yourself in a point where your own uh, opinion on who's in and who's out is getting confronted by God. It's a window into how followers of Jesus wrestle through their beliefs. I'm going to close today by showing you a diagram here. This is called Circles of Belief. Now, in the center of this uh, lovely diagram here, you see Jesus. And for us here at North Shore Vineyard, Jesus is the non-negotiable. We believe that Jesus is the foundation of the church. As a great songwriter once wrote, he is the rock that will not be moved. One of my favorite songwriters ever. <laughs> Jesus, we believe, gives us the picture of what, it, what God looks like as one of us. So we're not left in trying to imagine God is this abstract force like in Star Wars. We actually have a picture in the four Gospels of what we can look like. This is, this is, what, this is what God, how God acts as one of us. So that's the non-negotiable. We do not divert off of this. Jesus is God incarnate. We believe that. We move out from Jesus. We get to dogma. Dogma is a bad word in our modern world. Uh, but dogma just basically meant the, the core teachings of the church. So, for example, well, I, I'd give you an example, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to do it from memory. The Apostles' Creed. If you go on North Shore Vineyard's website to see what do we believe, we put up the Apostles' Creed. We believe... And God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, 
was suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and rose again. Seated in the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, which means universal church, communion of the saints, forgiveness of sins, and a life everlasting. Do we get it all for the most part? That's the Apostles' Creed. <laughs> Thank y'all. <laughs> We're a very creedal-oriented church. We do. <laughs> but that's dogma. And basically... Any Christian church that has existed for 2,000 years that would be considered an orthodox Christian church believes in that stuff, and we affirm that. Now, you move out of dogma into doctrine. Doctrine can be something like whether you think it's okay for, for infants to be baptized or if you need to be an adult. Doctrine is where churches split, by the way. Uh, the 40,000 different Christian denominations of the world, they split over doctrine. That's what separates Baptists from Pentecostals, from Catholics, from Episcopals, and so on. You move from doctrine to opinion. What is opinion? Opinion's like, <laughs> I remember as a young Christian going to this church over in Hammond, I, I, I got I to hand it to the person that was a guest speaker this one night. This, this was back in the 90s, too. This was not when this was, was a hip thing to do. This person came in and told us that Jesus wanted us to all become vegans. I mean, you might as well come into church and tell people God wants them to get rid of their guns. I mean, that, that takes some guts. And, uh, but that's opinion. God wants you to educate your kids this way. God doesn't like R-rated movies or God wants you to, whatever. That's opinion. Now, the important thing about this diagram, we hold very tightly to Jesus. <laughs> but as you move from the center, we loosen our grip. So we don't look at doctrine as something that we want to get terribly divisive with people about. So if you come to, you know, we did a class here last, uh, last fall on, on hell, the four views of hell. And we looked at the different ways that Christians throughout the last two millennium have wrestled with that. And we talked about it, and we had an engaging discussion. But at the end of the day, I said, it doesn't matter what you think on this issue to be a member of this church. I'll give you my opinion on what I think is the best point of view on it. But you don't have to. We're, we're not united by that. We're united by Jesus. And that's what I see going on in the book of Acts. They're wrestling through who gets to be in and who gets to be out. But they're, they're wrestling as they're looking at Jesus, as they're paying attention to the Holy Spirit movement in themselves and in other people. And they're doing it as a community. And that's messy stuff, folks. Because you can see, even the apostles, man, they did not get along with each other all the time. It wasn't all kumbaya. They got in sharp disagreements and had to confront one another. I mean, Paul had to call Peter, the rock of the church, a hypocrite in front of everybody because Peter was saying all this stuff about Gentiles. And then when he got around Jewish people, he wouldn't, <laughs> like, Gentiles, who are they? He just acted like he didn't know them. What we're trying to do as a church here, when it comes to our belief, we think through our beliefs from the center, holding tightly to Jesus, holding to the dogma. But when it comes to our doctrine and our opinions, we, we try to acknowledge where they are in the hierarchy of things. Because here's what happens. Some churches elevate doctrine to the foundation of the church. And doctrine, you know, my doctrine has changed a bunch since I became a new Christian. But I can tell you this. The Jesus that I met when I was 20 years old, 
depressed and suicidal, sitting on my couch when I cried out to God and surrendered my life to Christ, my view of that Jesus has never changed. It has expanded. I mean, the love of God, I mean, yes, there's more depth and clarity and all that, but, but that has never changed. I still follow the same Jesus to this day. It's that same Jesus that has changed my life, given me freedom, given me healing. It's non-negotiable. My doctrine has evolved quite a bit. <laughs> and my opinions, sometimes they change every day. When I look at some of the stories in the news the last few weeks, I hear somebody commenting on it from one side. I'm like, yeah, I'm totally with you. Then somebody from the other side comes along, and they say, that, well, yeah, you got a point. I'm totally with you now. My opinions are all over the place. But our church is not founded on opinion. It's not founded on doctrine. It's founded on Jesus. And hopefully Jesus informs us when it comes to doctrine and our opinions. That's what we want. But as a community, we are trying to, you know, that's one of the things I love about North Shore Vineyard. I think about half the people who go to church here are liberal. Half the people are conservative. You got people who are libertarian, people who are anarchist. I love when I go to celebrate recovery. You know, you see people who, you got lawyers and homeless people sitting right next to each other. That's a beautiful thing, people. But it doesn't happen if we're elevating doctrine and opinion over Jesus. So we start with the simple thing of, of following Jesus. And I'm going to unpack that more next week. But um, I think that's about as far as I can go today. Yes, it's about as far as I can go. It's further than I should go. <laughs> Why don't you all stand up? I'll, I'll pray real quick. I'll pray for grace. Lord, we thank you for what you were doing in our lives. We thank you for the invitation to wrestle, Lord. God, I know we all are facing different things. Some people are facing suffering. Some people are facing hardship. Lord, we're living in a world that feels like it's constantly shaking, Lord, but you are the firm foundation that will not be moved, Lord. Our lives are in your hands. God, help us in all the things that we are facing to, to wrestle from the center, to wrestle from your spirit. Lord, that we would have love in our relationships even when we have differences with one another. Lord, that we could walk in a spirit of humility and learn to listen from your Holy Spirit, even when it comes from people that we disagree with, God, that we would have eyes to see what you're doing, that we would be a people that are marked not by our ideology, but our love for one another, Lord, and for you. Amen. And if you need some prayer, come on up here. We'll get some people to pray with you this morning. God bless you all. Go pick up your kids.